Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 400. I, I feel like it's the key to success in this business, which is, which is uh, real, true humility. Um, and putting yourself, maybe not in the backseat, but certainly in the passenger seat for a lot of this. Understanding that it's about the guest experience. It's about your staff. It's about, it's about everybody. It's not just about you and what you're putting on a plate as a chef. Or if you're a GM or a SOM, it's not about you know, how fucking rad your line list reads necessarily. It's, it's about all these other things. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Increase return visits by 200% with 5 Stars. 5 Stars helps you build a database of your customers' spend and visit behaviors. 5 Stars also helps you stay continually connected by automatically sending personalized offers and rewards. To learn more, head over to get.5stars.com slash unstoppable or use promotional code unstoppable. And when you set up a demo, 5 Stars will send you a $25 gift card to some of their favorite retailers like Target, Starbucks, Home Depot, and more. What are you waiting for? Get on it. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000. Apply online and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable and you'll get a $100 gift card when you qualify. That's cabbage with a K. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Jason Alley. Chef, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? Feeling kind of unstoppable today. <laughs> yes, let's do this. So, uh, before we get started, a special shout out to Janae Libby. Thank you for this this shout out for calling Chef out. I'm looking forward to it. The story looks great, and uh, it said that Chef Jason Alley started cooking at the age of four after a few short stints at a Hardee's, a Quaker owned orchard, and a country club. Chef Alley started to find his passion. Fast forward a couple years, maybe I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming probably upwards of 10 years in multiple sous chef and executive chef positions later in the early 2000s chef met his business partner chris chandler and by 2002 the pair were opening their first restaurant today ali is the chef partner of three restaurants comfort pasture and flora uh obviously we're just scraping the surface your story goes much deeper than that but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra take it away uh, the one that's been sticking with me a lot recently is a quote by the uh, by the always inimitable Montgomery Burns, um, and it's uh, "Bring in the love, push out the jive." Bring in the love, push out the jive. Montgomery Burns is he a duck? Is is that Ducktales? Who's Montgomery Burns? That's that's Mister Burns from The Simpsons. Oh, that's what it is. I knew it was a cartoon. That's awesome. Say it one more time. Bring yeah. in the love. What was he's it? leading Cal. He's, yeah, he's leading calisthenics at the nuclear plant. And as he's doing it, he's saying, bring in the love, push out the jive as the breathing <laughs> mantra. And uh, it's kind of, like kind of been with me a lot these last few weeks. So uh, 
really dive into that. Why is that mantra sticking with you? How are you using that mantra day to day to kind of just keep showing up? You know, it's it, part of it is that it always cracks me up thinking about Montgomery Burns in a tracksuit. Um, you know, and the way that, that life is, you know, a little bit of levity goes a long way. But it's also, I mean, it's a pretty legit way to, to sort of think about stuff, right? I mean, it's, a, it's about breathing practices and getting centered, but also, you know, there's a lot of bullshit out there. And it's important to, to think about the good and the positive and, and get the rest of the crap out of the way. So, yeah. you know, to find depth and meaning from a Simpsons quote might be a little bit of lily gilding, but it really has been resonating a lot with me. Awesome. I do love it. And there's so much power. There's so much truth in that staying positive, staying optimistic, because it's hard work. And if you focus on the negative, you're going to be negative. And really, at the end of the day, we're in this industry to lift people up. And, you know, you've got to bring that that positive energy. You've got to focus on the good. So awesome stuff. All right. So uh, where did it all start for you? Uh, it looks like you, you grew up around food. But when did you know that this wasn't going to just be a for now job, but this was actually going to be your career? Um, you know, it's, it's funny. Like I grew up in Southwestern Virginia at a really super rural town. Um, I'm in my mid forties. So I grew up in Pulaski County in the seventies and early eighties. And, um, there were no restaurants, you know, the, the idea of a chef job at that time was just not even something that, that crossed my plate. I started working when I failed out of college, like freaking immediately, um, started working in a country club and I worked fast food by, you know, all through high school and um, really had no interest in continuing to do it. But I started washing dishes at this club and the chef was actually really good. Um, and he let me hang out and watch, you know, the whole, it's that classic old school story, right? Yeah. Like if you bang out all the dishes and then you peel every potato and every carrot and every onion, he would let me hang out and watch. And I caught the bug. Um, and I didn't think that it was going to be something that was going to be a career necessarily. I assumed I would go back to college. Um, and I, you know, I just, I caught the bug and I had an act for it, you know, so it stuck. And then um, I just kept doing it. So were you actually, uh, were you just sitting there watching or was he giving you anything to do? Or were you just kind of like a fly on the wall at that time? Uh, a, a little bit of both, but a lot of it was just fly on the wall. You know, I mean, I had no skill set really whatsoever. Um, surprisingly, uh, busting tables at a crab shack and uh, cooking hamburgers at Hardy's did not translate <laughs> to dinner service at a country club. So, um, so there wasn't a ton for me to do, but, you know, he just let me kind of watch the flow. Okay. Um, and watching these sort of this, this mix of like really talented guys and just straight up like kitchen pirates um, putting out beautiful plates and making people happy, it really, it stuck with me. So, what specifically was it um, about at this point of your life that really sang to you that made you want to pursue it further? Cause it was it at this time that you're like, all right, this is my career. This is what I'm going to commit to. Yeah, it was, it was after I started actually cooking. So I got promoted to a lunch position. They actually put me on the floor for a little while. Um, and I, I hated it. I was terrible <laughs> at waiting tables. Um, so I actually begged to come back into the dish room, um, which I think maybe I'm the only person ever. <laughs> that left a, a serving job to wash dishes. That's great though um, that you you got to to see the front of the house. I think a lot of chefs don't, and they they don't understand they don't. that it's not it's not easy. It's a lot of it's hard work. No, man. Uh, it's super super <laughs> hard work. Um, and so you know, I, I got promoted into a lunch position, um, and I really enjoyed it. And I just I worked my ass off, you know. And so I eventually got promoted to lead cook there. And a position came open for a sous chef job at a little bar and grill in Harrisonburg. And 
It's like, you know what? Let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. And that turned into my first executive chef job at 21. Wow. And that was it. Awesome. So um, what were... Take some of the, the key steps along the way. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the early years. I feel like a lot of people that are listening right now are going through the stages of opening their own restaurants. So I want to like spend most of our time mm-hmm. there. But uh, what were some of the, 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 the I guess, intentional moves you made uh, between uh, realizing that you have a knack and a passion for this and uh, really starting to set yourself up for success? You know, the big thing for me was that I couldn't afford culinary school. Um, and at that point in time, this is like 1992-ish, um, there weren't a whole lot of culinary schools out there. And the ones that were were expensive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, these sort of trade programs didn't exist. So after taking that first exec chef job, I realized I was way in over my head. Um, I learned a ton through failing um, and through some success. But my path was taking a step down in position and increasing in caliber of restaurant for really the next... 10 years almost. Um, All right. So let's, let's tap the brakes. There. That was sort of my training. Yeah. Let's, yep. let's go deeper in this. So uh, you said you, you got that executive chef position and you realized mm-hmm. you're overhead. So what, how weren't you ready? What, what things were going on that made you realize that you were, you were in over your head? Um, you know, I had never been responsible for ordering. I had never been responsible for scheduling, for hiring, for training, all these things I was learning by the seat of my pants. And there weren't the you know, higher level expectations of, of numbers and bookkeeping and that kind of stuff. But um, I literally had no idea how to run a restaurant. You know, I've seen people run kitchens, um, but that's so far different from that first opportunity. Um, and the chef who was training me as a sous chef was a great guy, but he didn't really have that experience either. So I knew at that point, like if I'm going to do this for real, um, whether it's for myself at some point or just in a, in a in that next level of, of restaurant that I needed to work for people that knew what the hell they were doing yep. and they knew the business end of stuff. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny. I mean, and that's, that's crucial. Yeah. If you want to be a cook, if you want to be a chef, I mean, I, I hope you know how to cook. I mean, I hope you know how to cook. Uh, that's just the beginning though. And, and it's really, you don't start to shine until you, you start to do all those other things, right? The, the ordering, the scheduling, the, the, the training, uh, replacing yourself with other people, leading uh, and building that culture, that team, all those things are so crucial to success. And you realize that they, they really are. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, 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 the team building, you know, I think I've always sort of had a knack for team building and for leadership, mm-hmm. but that that fiscal health, that that financial component of it is so integral. And it doesn't matter how good a cook you are. If you're not a sound business person, mm-hmm. um, your opportunities to cook are going to decrease very, very quickly. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe we can dive into some of that business advice, advice as we start diving yeah, into sure. your story. But uh, one thing you mentioned real quick that I thought was really great advice is you decided to go up in the caliber of restaurant uh, and down in the, the, your role, your position. And I think that's a really great uh, thing to do. If you're, if you're looking to learn, surround yourself with the most incredible people you can uh, and just learn right. and spend that time learning. So was that advice that you got or was that instinctual? Like why'd you make that move? No, it was pretty instinctual. Um, <clears throat> I ended up moving from, so this was always kind of going down in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Um, I went to James Madison when I graduated high school. Like I mentioned earlier, I like catastrophically failed out. You know, I just literally did not go to, to school. I didn't go to class. Um, but I met my now wife there, and she went to graduate school in Illinois. And, you know, I just had this, yeah, I, I still play music. And at that point in time, I was, you know, playing in punk rock bands and, and you know, doing this chef thing. And 
it's like I just had this really vivid image of me being that dude at 50, balding with a bandana on, working in some well, shitty bar, easy with the uh, and playing in an even easy. shittier band. <laughs> easy on the ball. <laughs> you know? Sensitive subject, right? Now. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh my god, like I can't be that guy. Um, so I moved out there with her. We got engaged, and I moved to Illinois. And I was like, you know, shit, if I'm going to do this, um, I need to find the best restaurant in the city. And that's not going to be a chef position. And I don't want it to be. Um, mm-hmm. So I worked in another country club there um, just because the pay was, was good. And there weren't a whole lot of opportunities in Champagne at that point. But I left that job um, about six months in and took a very sizable paycheck cut to be sous chef at a restaurant in town that was really great. Um, co- uh, chef from the East Coast who had been doing it for 25 years um, and was at least as sound a business person as he was a cook. And that's what I was really looking for. So what were your big, um, your biggest so it was kind lessons? of an instinctual move. What were your biggest lessons, chef? Like looking back at this time, you, you made it, uh, it was intentional. <clears throat> it was intentional. Uh, you want to learn. What did you pick up that you didn't realize before? Um, well, a lot of technique. I mean, honestly, you know, as far as the, the chef component, I learned a lot about proper technique and product utilization. Um, which was that first sort of foray, that first conversation into the financial part, mm-hmm. right? So if you're using whole cuts of meat, if you're using whole fresh vegetables and you have all this food left over, if you throw it in the trash, that's money in the trash, right? Um, and also, I've, you know, at this point, my philosophy is that it's also kind of shitty to the, to the product. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, if, uh, if an animal gives its life, you owe it to Not that animal. animal but even vegetables, everything that we consume is, was once living. Uh, you know, and you it was gotta, once living exactly. Um, okay. Yep. Anything. So that was that first sort of like did like dip into that financial piece. And then I was just like, I was just a sponge. You know, I mm-hmm. just, you know, we would sit down for shift drinks after work and sometimes it was just shooting the shit, but often it was like, all right, tell me about this. Tell me about food costs. Tell me about how you're analyzing these numbers. Tell me about how you're budgeting your schedule. Um, so you're and this guy really took me under his wing. That's, that's awesome. That's key right there, guys. People aren't going to just start telling you this stuff. I mean, some people will. They'll take the initiative. But if you really want to learn, you got to take the initiative. That's awesome. A hundred percent. Awesome. Okay. So any other big takeaways from this time before we move on to like some of the other uh, steps you took along the way? Um, you know, I mean, that was the biggest one. It was that sort of that sort of realization that this is something that I could do to provide for my family that could actually, you know, bring me um, fulfillment. And a lot of it was, was understanding exactly how hard the work is and that in order to be successful, you gotta work, you just gotta work so hard. Um, and I was really young and that was appealing to me. Yeah. And you were a sous chef when you, when you got into this restaurant in uh, Chicago, Chicago, correct? Uh, champagne, champagne. I'm sorry. Um, and you, you climbed up to the executive chef role. How long did it take you to do that? Um, you know, it was a lot of bouncing back and forth, honestly, you know, a lot of these jobs just kind of morphed into jobs and I was in Illinois for about three years and then we moved to Atlanta, um, Mm -hmm. after my wife graduated and I actually took, um, a junior sous chef job at the first restaurant I worked there because it was yet another step up Mm -hmm. in caliber of Mm -hmm. restaurant. Um, and then I left there to take a line cook job at an even better restaurant, you know, because I just wanted to learn the technique and I knew that if I wanted to develop some sort of style. I mean, I hate to say my cuisine because I think that's bullshit, but you know, some sort of cooking style um, that I need as much depth and experience as I could possibly get. So I just, you know, hustled, man, hustled, hustled, hustled. 
Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then that, that ended up going into some more um, exec suit positions in Atlanta. Um, yeah. So you started at the 1848, you moved over to the Blue uh, Ridge Grill, and then you ended at uh, Eno before making uh, your last trip before moving into ownership. So, uh, and I love how you are constantly looking to improve, constantly looking to just move one step up. And, and for you, it sounds like the intention the entire time was to learn. Uh, just, I mean, what key advice do you have for somebody who's listening to this, who's who's in that dream mode and who's in that learning mode uh, to you know to, to do it right? What advice do you have for them? I, you know, so many of the, the the adages become cliche, but they become cliche because they're really true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's hard work and dedication, but so much of it is about open ears. It's about listening to people. <laughs> it's about, um, you know, li- really paying attention to what's going on around you and asking those questions. And realizing that, you know, um, there's ego that's involved in this yeah. work, right? You have to at least have enough ego to think people should buy your food. Um, and that sometimes gets in the way of listening and stepping back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is the key, that, that humility and that interest in really learning from the people that are around you. If you don't do that, you're screwed. It's never going to happen. Yeah. It, you, you said something that made me laugh. And I think you were saying that it's like, it really comes down to like, I don't know the words you use, but it's like the most basic things that you're taught at like two, three, four, five years old, these sayings treat others like you want to be treated yourself. And uh, I mean, this is one thing that comes to mind, but it's when I first started this podcast, I was like, I'm going to try to find the thing that people don't realize like the, the secret or whatever it is. And the more I keep learning, it's like all these things that really make the difference between the good and the great are things that you learn at a young age. And it's just the discipline to, to, to do it right into to have that humility yeah. and to, to listen. And That's to, exactly and right. I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, getting out of your own way, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so you're right. Like all of these, all of these, you know, these quips and these cliches and these lessons have been out there for forever. A lot of times we just don't pay attention to them, mm-hmm. you know, because they become so cliche. Um, but you have to be humble. You have mm-hmm. to take these things that everybody knows, right? Be a decent person, be willing to learn, be accepting of the fact that you don't know everything. Um, and it seems so simple and base, but I don't think that people embrace it as much as they should. When you do, that's when growth can happen. Yep. So you spent uh, a few, was it a few years in Atlanta? You're at three restaurants. How much time yeah. did you spend in Atlanta? Uh, we were there for about three years, three years in Three restaurants. Were you committing at least a year at each one of these restaurants? Um, give or take, you know, nine months to a year. And then one of them, actually, the last job was at the 1848 house in Marietta. And that was a little bit longer than a year. It was about okay. a year and a half. Okay. Um, and that was an executive sous position. So I was, you know, at that point, it was almost functioning like a chef de cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was my first real ability to dip into Southern food, like upscale Southern food. And yeah. the fact that we as Southern cooks with Southern ingredients could really um, could make something special that people were really, really excited by. Nice. Before we dive into uh, the move to Richmond, back to your home state, uh, one thing I want to point out, uh, because we're talking a lot about getting that experience uh, and always step, going up a step and surrounding yourself with awesome people. But one thing I want to point out, that you did is you spent some time at each restaurant. I feel like, I feel like you can also burn bridges, uh, jumping around too fast. So, uh, getting that experience is great, but you spent a considerable amount of time at each one of these restaurants. And if you start burning people, they invest their knowledge in you, uh, their time in you, like give them at least, like you said, like nine to 10 months or a year. Uh, that's, that's the the honorable thing to do, right? It is. And also I think that, 
there's a there's a place for being really upfront in the beginning, right? Like, hey, I'm going to work for you like an animal. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to be first one in. I'm going to be last one out. But I'm in my learning process, right? Mm-hmm. So if I stay here for five years, that's going to limit my learning. Yeah. Um, and so as much as I like to have guys that stay with me for one of my chef at Flores been working with me for 13 years, but I have guys that um, – that are in for a year, maybe two years, and they put in great work and great time. And when it's time for them to move on, I encourage it, you know, um, because they do need to continue that growth process. So why did you want to go? But back? honesty is key. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so why did you want to head back to Virginia? What was it in Virginia that you were missing? Well, we've been married for about five years at that point in time. And, um, you know, we were ready to start having kids and, um, we were, you know, eight, 10 hours away from our parents. Um, and Atlanta's a hard place to live. You know, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, and it was super expensive. My wife is in theater, so we weren't exactly crushing it on the financial game. So, you know, we're living kind of far out in a really crappy neighborhood. The commute was terrible. And so our quality of life just wasn't where we wanted to be. Um, and we knew that we could find an easier quality of life in Richmond. And, we, you know, the, the support from, from family when you're having kids is really uh, – it's a really wonderful thing. So – my mother's in southwestern Virginia still. Her parents are in Virginia Beach. Um, and we had a lot of friends that were in Richmond. We knew the city really well. I used to play shows in Richmond a lot. So it was really that sort of northern Virginia, D.C. area, um, which to us was just out of the frying pan and you know into the fire as far as that sort of difficulty of living. Um, so Richmond was a really obvious thing. So I ended up landing a job here. We moved up and about a year and uh, maybe 14 months later, we opened our first place. So what was the, um, the, the first role you, you picked up at, uh, in Richmond? It was Europa cafe and tap. I moved up here for an executive. Yeah, exactly. A, a place called Europa, which isn't around anymore, but I moved up here to be the executive chef at that restaurant. And you know, I, I learned a lot. Uh, it wasn't the best fit for me or for the restaurant. Honestly, um, the the food that I was interested in cooking was not really what the guests were were interested in, um, and it was fine. But it wasn't. I wasn't feeling fulfilled. fulfilled yeah. And I do think that the, I wasn't serving the restaurant as well as it could be served. I mean, honestly. a chef that's passionate so, is the, the southern hospitality, southern cooking, uh, comfort food. You're doing you know European tapas. I, I don't. I can't really see you being that fulfilled. <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, and it was one of those things where I was still like really trying to find my voice as a cook, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I didn't know for sure at that point that I wanted to do Southern. Um, I knew that it was what I had grown up on. Mm -hmm. I knew that um, I had a lot of, you know, sort of skill set in that from cooking as a kid. And I did fall in love with it when I was in Atlanta, but I wasn't like, this is my fucking drive. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to be the next Frank Stitt. You know, that wasn't necessarily what was happening in my head. But once I got there, I realized that it was. You know, you so there? I wasn't feeling that fulfillment. When you, when you, say, when you say when you got there, uh, you mean when you got to Virginia, when you got to this restaurant, when you got there? When I got to, when I, yeah, when I got to this restaurant, when okay. I got to Europa. Um, I really was still trying to figure out what that was. You know, I worked at Mediterranean restaurants and French restaurants and Southern restaurants and upscale American restaurants. And, you know, so I'd, I had a pretty good breadth of experience, but I hadn't really dug in yet to mm-hmm. really, you know, if I was going to do this for the rest of my life, what, what would my voice be? Mm-hmm. Um, and I really started to find that once I moved up and took this chef position at Europa. Um, so as much as it wasn't a good fit for that restaurant, it was invaluable to me um, to find my voice and figure out who I was going to be as a chef for the rest of my life. So would you say you found your voice while working at Europa? 
Yeah. And yeah, I think can, so. Can you bring us to that moment to that when that realization? You know, it, when I see th- that initial statement sounds so lofty and to be perfectly <laughs> honest, it, it really wasn't, you know, okay. it's like, um, I got to a point where I was like, fuck this, you know, nobody here wants to eat what I'm cooking. I'm just going to open a, a, you know, fucking lunch counter and just be done with it. I'm over it. And that negativity, I was like, okay, this is super uh, unhelpful, mm-hmm. right? This is not helpful to me or anybody else. And so I was like, all right, well, let's, let's take that thought, like, you know, a lunch counter, a barbecue restaurant, like what could that really be that could have some important, some importance because that was important to me at the time. What's a niche that needs filling in the market? Because obviously if we're going to open our own place, we don't want to fail immediately. Um, and what's going to make me feel fulfilled? Like I'm doing something that I can really get behind. And so that's when that, that concept of comfort as the sort of like upscale meet and three really came into focus. I'm like, all right, well, let, let's take that initial shitty response and turn it into something positive. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of how it ended up coming about. Awesome. So, okay. Um, you, you find your business partner and was it Chris Chandler? Is that name? Um, yeah. Yeah. So yep, that's exactly right. So what was his role at Europa? How did you guys meet and how did this relationship start to form? He, um, he bartended there. He was actually the cousin of the owner. Um, and Michelle Williams is a restaurateur in town. She owns a, a bunch of restaurants and really successful restaurant group. And Chris had done a lot of front of house stuff with her. And when he lived in, uh, in Colorado and he was actually working for me in the kitchen. Um, it's like a garmanger cup basically. Um, and, you know, his family had some ties in the community. Some, you know, they had some, some, you know, they're not wealthy, but they had some ties in the business community and in the banking community. And so we started talking about it. We're like, well, shit, let's, you know, let's give this a go. Um, yeah. Really take and, us through that. So we actually take us through how, who approached who and uh, why, why did you choose Chris? What did Chris bring to the table that you didn't have aside from the network and the, uh, the front of house experience? Or is that it? I mean, that was that was a lot of it. I mean, we got along really well too. I mean, we were really good friends. Um, we worked well together. Um, he liked what I was doing food wise, um, and, and he was like, you know, if if you want to do this, it's something that I want to do as well. Um, you know, you've got the restaurant experience and you've got a menu concept. Let me see if we can put together the financial piece of it and let's find a space. So a lot um, of people say, don't go into business with good friends. Stay away from business with good friends. Why do you think that's not that's not accurate? It really depends on the relationship um, because I think that that's really true uh, to an extent. If the, if it's a, if it's a good enough friend and a good enough relationship, um, then you have each other's backs, you know, you have a vested interest in, in each other's success um, personally, as well as financially. Yeah. So there's a lot of benefits to it, um, yeah. but so, it's like opening something with family, right? Yeah. It can get a little sticky sometimes yeah. for sure. Um, I, but opening a business with a stranger can be uh, at least as shitty. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't know that person. You don't know. I mean, I, I bring this, this example up a lot on the show, Dave query, uh, who's the, the owner of big red F out in Colorado, I believe, or yeah, Colorado, Denver area. I uh, said, you know, when you're going into a partnership, you got to ask yourself, am I willing to marry this person? Uh, and if the yeah. answer is yes, then that consider it. Uh, and it's like saying like what you said earlier, uh, like, you know, or if we said earlier, 
don't go into business with friends, but like, would you, would you not marry your friend? You would, you would hope that like, you're not going to like just marry somebody strictly off of what assets they bring to the table, like a arranged marriage. Like, you want to, <laughs> you want to be the people that you marry. Right. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I agree with that. Don't, don't go into business with friends. Cause like you said, like you want that rapport, you want to make sure they're, they're doing good for themselves and uh, that the trust and all that stuff. Exactly. And, you know, and I think that there, there is more truth to hiring friends. Um, and I found that I've had a lot of great success hiring close friends and have developed great relationships, um, continue to develop, you know, to go from friendship to sort of a peer colleague relationship through business. Hiring okay friends or acquaintances, that's where the fucking nightmare lives. Okay. You why? know, um, because those are the people who um, who don't necessarily have your best interest at heart, right? If it's a really close friend, if it's somebody that you really believe in, that you have a relationship with, normally, and I'd say more often than not, they really do. They, they, they want to see you be successful in all aspects of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the acquaintances who don't really, they, they don't give that much of a shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like it's always a disaster, but those are the ones that can get really sticky. Um, and the older I get, luckily, the less of my friends are in the restaurant business. <laughs> so it really is a, a, a little bit more of a, a, it's a different relationship with my staff than I've had in the past. But, you know, there, there, there are positives and, and negatives to both sides of it. You know, the, the difficulty with hiring um, friends is if it does go to shit, um, then you don't just lose an employee, you lose a friend. Yeah. All right. And that, that can be really tough. Yeah. Awesome stuff. So let's start focusing on the actual uh the actual process of making this first restaurant comfort happen. So you you're talking with your business partner, Chris, and you guys are, are visioning uh, you're, you're starting to get the money. Like take us through where it started with the vision and how, what actions you took to get the funding to be open. So we went through, we went through a, several different things. We, we started looking at buying a building um, because we knew that it'd be a lot easier to get a bank loan. If there was, you know, a physical asset yep. um, that would help collateralize the loan. So we started looking at that and we realized in order to make a deal like that financially work, we would end up being landlords. We would end up being property managers. We'd be all of these things as well as trying to run a successful uh, restaurant. And for a first time ownership, we luckily and wisely were like, you know what? That's a terrible idea. We'll probably end up losing all of it. Um, so that shift went to trying to find a space, an available space that had been a restaurant um, so that we didn't have to, to put in hoods and do a full ground up construction. Um, and we went with his dad, who was a partner in the business, um, to a bank, a one branch local bank in Richmond that doesn't exist anymore. It's merged, I think, nine times now. <laughs> um, and we went in and we got a loan for $150,000 um, on a handshake deal. And we opened Comfort. Okay, I so think that we got the last one of those that's ever happened <laughs> ever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, it's really interesting. And the the topic of ownership versus leasing comes up often. And usually, people for the reasons you listed uh, as far as pros to ownership, you you have that asset. And really, at the end of the day, we're in the mm-hmm. business of uh, realty, like real estate. And our our most valuable asset as a restaurant owner is the actual physical space. Because if shit hits the fan, then we still have something that we can you know flip if we own it or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but you make some really good points on, Hey, like this is a first time ownership. Uh, we want to 
we want to focus on running a, the business, not necessarily all wearing all these other hats. And, you know, and that's something that hasn't come up much on the show. So you make a good point there. Well, we, you know, we, we knew that we were, that there was going to be a really accelerated learning curve yeah. um, because, you know, running kitchens and, you know, mostly running restaurants is a whole different thing than fully running a restaurant and owning it. And, you know, the responsibility of making sure that insurance is kept up with and the, the constant repairs and, the you know, even though we were a small restaurant, the inevitable HR issues and all these things that were going to be really new to us. Um, we knew that that was going to be hard enough. Mm-hmm. And um, so then if we're dealing with a tenant in 3B whose yeah. toilet's fucked up, you know, and it's the middle of dinner service, what do we do at that point? Yeah, I hear you. Um, you know, so it was it was a big consideration, and you know, subsequently we we've not purchased any buildings for the other stuff that we've done. Um, one of our partners at Pasture is the building owner, and that's been fantastic. Okay. Um, so you know, we see the benefits to both. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are real benefits to leasing, and there are real benefits to ownership. So that first restaurant, Comfort, what was what came first, the location or the vision? Vision first. Um, and then, you know, the menu started to get fine-tuned based around what we could actually produce out of the space, okay. right? It's about a 2,400-square-foot space, tiny kitchen. Um, so that really focused in on how the prep schedule was going to go, what we could actually fabricate. Um, and so yeah, so conceptually, it was realized before we went into the space, the space dictated how that, that, con- that, that can conceive motion actually made it to the table, like actually got on a plate into the guest. Did you have to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Oh, the words escaping me. Uh, when you settle for something, not settle, but you, it's a win-win situation. Uh, compromise. Did you compromise on your vision with the location? Was there anything that you wanted to do originally that you weren't able to do because of the location? You know, part of it is that it's 15 years ago. So it's kind of hard to remember like all those sort of, you know, minute, the, the minutiae of it. Um, because it's just been a part of my life for yeah, so yeah. long. Like it's so much bigger than me. It's like, it's its, its own thing, and, but I don't feel like we ever did. You know, it was more like, all right, well, we want to run 13 sides. I've only got 10 burners. So we have to make sure that X amount of our sides are done in bulk and can be scooped and served. Mm-hmm. Now, if they're going to be scooped and served, how do we execute that in a way that doesn't compromise the integrity of the product? So it was more of that sort of a process. Um, so I wanted to do 13 sides. I did 13 sides, but they weren't maybe necessarily the ones that I had initially written down on the menu. Um, but yeah, so the overall concept stayed the same, but maybe some of those like individual dishes kind yeah. of morphed a little bit to make so better sense. We haven't really talked much about the vision, um, Southern cooking, comfort food, uh, a place that's not where you could go and feel comfortable, but what, what exactly was, the vision, what did you want to pull off? So when we moved here, when my wife and I moved to Richmond, there, there were a couple of Southern food restaurants, but really it was mostly soul food. Um, and they were delicious and they were awesome. And they closed at three, mm-hmm. right? So there was no place to get Southern food at night. There was no place where you could get something that was traditionally Southern and have a cocktail mm-hmm. or buy a bottle of wine. Like that just didn't exist. Um, so we wanted to create that idea of the meet and three of something that's easily, you know, customizable by the guests. Um, we opened in what was a really rough neighborhood then too. We also knew that, um, that getting to the restaurant was going to be adventurous enough for most guests. So once they got in the door, 
we wanted to be super familiar. Um, and that idea that it's, it's food that you probably grew up eating, but hopefully just a shitload better than what you ate as a kid. Um, and so that was the whole idea. It's like, let's, let's take something that everybody's really familiar with in Richmond from Johnson's grill where, you know, it's that classic, like sort of black owned restaurant. That's like, you know, poor people and rich people and black people and white people all gathering together for lunch. Like you see in these Southern cities, um, Let's take that familiarity and then let's be able to have a properly made old fashioned, you know, let's be able to get a delicious bottle of wine to go with it, make it a bit more of an experience. So let's talk about actually opening the restaurant and pulling it off. Take us through that, that process. What was it like opening? Cause this is the first time you've opened a restaurant, right? Cause you've worked in a lot of restaurants <laughs> and you yeah. got a lot of great experience, but the, the opening of a restaurant is a, a lesson in itself. So, a hundred percent. So I was lucky enough to, um, one of the reasons that I went to go work at Eno in Atlanta was it was a new construction restaurant. The chef was outrageously talented um, and it opened to a ton of buzz. Um, so that was important to me. But the big thing was, holy shit, here's an opportunity to go through the process, right? Like I actually get to see this thing come from, you know, like a, just a blown out shell of a space in the bottom of uh, office and apartment building in downtown Atlanta or midtown Atlanta and see that come together. So I knew I would, that, that I really wanted to have that experience. So I had at least done that part of it as a cook, you know, okay. like things that still get lost in the, the shuffle, like where are the fucking nine pans going to live? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Like how, where are you putting your saute pans? How are you organizing stations and coolers and all these things that you have to think about before you can even begin to put a piece of food on a plate? Um, so luckily I had that experience, um, but it was, man, accelerated learning curve like you wouldn't even believe. Um, we didn't have to do a ton of work to the space, but we had to do some plumbing, some electrical. We changed out some equipment. Um, and we GC that ourselves. <clears throat> so um, my wife is a designer and scenic artist. So she designed the place. She, we were pregnant with our first kid. She's on a scaffold doing oh, finished work pregnant. I mean, it's fucking bananas. <laughs> um, so, you know, it really, there was a lot of learning licensing process, right. you know, how do we go through that? And, um, and we had a lot of people who were really instrumental in helping, you know, that, that were very open with us about what their process was and, and give, that helped it. Give me like one or two like big lessons, big, like, Oh shit. Didn't consider that or whoa, blindsided, uh, like something that you can share with us that maybe help us or prevent us from being blindsided by the same thing. Um, capitalization. And I'm sure that if you've talked to people who have opened restaurants on this podcast, as much as you have, you've heard that, um, the need to be properly, properly capitalized. Were you Um, undercapitalized? We did. We were. Yeah. I mean, we opened basically at zero, um, which is kind of par for the course. It's hard to really fully capitalize restaurants. Um, but we did not have any idea about how much we would have to schedule in for overages for, Oh shit, this is fucked up. This doesn't fit. We got this range, but it won't go through the door frame. Mm -hmm. So now we have to take all this stuff apart. And so those little things that are like $5,000 here, $200 there, all of a sudden really quickly add up to 25 grand. And if your operating budget is 150, uh, that's a pretty big portion of it. That's a big percentage. Um, and so that was a that was a real gut check that that was challenging as shit. Um, and there's n- there's no worse feeling, and it happens all the time, than opening night 
and you're like, dude, if we're not packed tonight, I don't know how I'm going to make payroll on Monday. You know, um, and it takes away from a lot of the joy of the open, um, and it adds stress where it shouldn't be. So, you know, that, that was a real big thing for me is understanding um, like how, how how variable those expenses really are. Um, as a variable, they really only go one way, which is up from where you thought they were going to be. Hindsight, um, hindsight being twenty twenty, what capital would you have wanted? What percentage would you have wanted? I guess extra. I would. I would have, I would have liked to have gone into opening. This was 15 years ago, so money was a little bit different than it is now. But I would have liked to have gone in with a month's worth of payroll mm. in the bank, a month's worth of payroll. And For you, how much was that? Purchasing. Approximately, what, what percent? Give me like a percent or a number. Mm, I would say, oh, shit, it's hard to say at that point. But you know, if we could have opened with 20 grand yep. in the bank, that, that would have covered our nut for a month. Cool. Um, and we did not have twenty grand in the bank, and luckily we started off pretty strong. So um, you're undercapitalized is one big lesson. 100%. Go in with a little bit of extra cash cushion for the what ifs. And what else? Anything else that looking back, like we could have done that better, or we should have done this or that. Um, the other thing was really um, like not I, and I don't know how you better prepare yourself for this, but to. To be, if we could have been better prepared for guest ex- expectations for the space. Um, what do you mean? You know how to re- how to really guide the guests through the experience, like to have a better script in place for the servers, have a better script in place for the cooks. Like, what are we really doing so that everybody had a more fully realized idea? What are we really what the doing? Process I think that's a great question was. to ask. Like, what are we really doing? Uh, what like what do you mean by that? What are we really doing? Um. Are we taking orders, putting them into the kitchen and handing people plates of food? Or are we creating a guest experience? Um, if we're creating a guest experience, what is that experience? Where do we focus on the little touches that separate us from other restaurants, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're doing comfort food, um, even as elevated as it may be, this is very much food that's easily replicated at home, right? Um, whether or not you want to fry catfish at your house, you fry catfish at your house. You know, we're not talking about like molecular gastronomy here. So I don't think that we were fully prepared with that script for how we explain to the guests what we're attempting to provide um, and what really separated us out. We, we developed that script and that dialogue fairly quickly. Within a month, everybody was on the same page. But that first month was, it was a lot of just, you know, we always talk about the difference between an order taker and a server. Um, it was a lot of that, but also on the kitchen end. Yep. It was just like, I don't fucking know, man. Yeah. <laughs> just get it out there. Um, so, and I think that we've, that subsequently when we've opened, we've had a much clearer idea of, of what we're really trying to provide to the guests. Um, and that helps a lot with the yeah. smoothness of opening. So it sounds like when you first got started, I mean, obviously you're, it was very successful. It still is today. Um, you figured, you eventually figured shit out take us through that process of running around uh, being more reactive and getting to the point where you're more proactive and really starting to be intentional and uh, work maybe more on the business than in the business. It took a few months. Um, We opened gangbusters. We had a huge dip and then we did a fairly rapid ascent towards, towards busyness. In that, you know, initial lull, which most restaurants have, you know, you open to a pop, it kind of dies down, and then you start to actually build the business. 
that little bit of a, of, of a downtime for the first couple of months, although really scary because you're like, holy shit, are they ever going to come back? Um, did allow us some time to really focus in on what we were doing, on how to be efficient, um, on how to really cook well. You know, we have this tiny little kitchen and a tiny little walk-in space. And how are we going to go through the ordering process? How are we going to refine that? And so, like you say, you know, that, that allowed us some time to really be proactive as opposed to reactive. Um, and once we got those systems in place, as business grew and grew and grew, we just... You know, we added more order days. We added more prep shifts. You know, but the but the system was in place. Um, and so what that advice was a, do you have to big to, help us? What's what singular advice do you have for developing those systems, really getting things in place? Um, it, it goes back to getting out of your own way. Um, a lot of it has to do with paying attention to what guests are really interested in. Um, you know, you're going to open your concept with a hopefully a very definitive idea of what you're going to provide. Um, and that may morph into what the guests actually want to happen when they come into the building. Um, and if you're in it for success of the restaurant and not in it for PR success, but actual like long-term success in the business, you look at those guest requests and needs and ordering habits and times that they're arriving. You look at all of those things that are happening um, that are really outside of your control and you pay attention. Mm-hmm. And you then looking? you start to formulate your plan around that. Where were you looking? Um, where should we be looking for the stuff? Just keep our eyes open and our ears open. Are you using any software or anything to really track uh, guest experience? Well, at that now? point, at, at that point, we had a cash register. Like we didn't even have a point of sale when we opened. Mm-hmm. Um, so just which that lasted about three years. So, um, so it really was just about those conversations. Yeah. It was about it was about open dialogue with the guests. It was about open dialogue with service staff and bar staff and, and management to really get a feel for what was happening. And, and we did shift some things around and we tweaked some stuff and, you know, we took some of the, the weirder awful off the menu because it wasn't moving and guests were like, it's a little fucking weird getting down here. I kind of just want my meatloaf. <laughs> like, that's great. We'll make the best goddamn meatloaf we can possibly make you. Keep your trick um, yourself, right? So, you know, yeah, exactly. You know, so these days, of course, we have the same point of sale system in all of the restaurants. We can track everything very much more detailed, but it's still um, none of that replaces the actual interaction with the guests yep. and, and paying attention to what they're saying. Mm. Um, you know, put that information into whatever software that you want to use to track it. But if you're not getting it actually from the guest, um, then you're doing yourself a disservice mm-hmm. for sure. All right. 15 years, three locations later. Um you've scaled your business. I mean, what allows you to have three locations? How are you doing that? What, what are some of the secrets to going from being the, 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 the one of two people that are like the keystone to, I, I need to be here that the, the business goes under to getting to that point where uh, you have three successful businesses going. Uh, I mean, what advice do you have for scaling? Um, well, my partner, Chris Chandler, my opening partner is not in the business anymore. Um, he decided that he was done with restaurants, which I completely understand. Okay. So my partner who I opened pasture with, Michelle Jones, um, is now my partner in all the restaurants. And so we have another partner, um, Jay Bear and Flora. We have another partner, Ryan Marchand, who's building over pasture. But we're sort of the core management and, and ownership group. Um, so finding that partner that you really, truly work well with is key. Um, but a lot of it is something that most chefs in particular are very good at, and it's relinquishing some control. Um, it's trusting your staff to, um, to run the restaurant the way that you've taught them to run it. Hopefully you've taught them well enough that they get your vision and how your sort of culture that you created. 
And then technology is, uh, as much as I want to throw my phone in the river sometimes, <laughs> um, if it wasn't for that sort of like mobile technology, there's no way we'd be able to do it. Um, so like right now, we're talking to each other multiple states away, face to face. And I can do that with my team. Yep. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing an event somewhere, if I'm on the West Coast, you know, I've been in Hawaii and taking phone meetings with management staff. Um, and you can do that now. So, so embracing the technology is really key. But if, it's about stepping back and trusting the people that you've trained to continue to see your vision through. Um, and if you're not somebody who can do that, then you probably shouldn't expand. And that's also totally fine. Um, but if you can't trust your team, then, uh, yeah, you're just going to live in your building. And there's a lot to be said for that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Um, all right. So I've got- I'm just kind of ADD about this shit. So I had to <laughs> no, you're great. To do. Uh, <laughs> I wrote down, uh, selecting the right partners, uh, the training up and trusting your team and just, you know, leaning on that tech. So, um, yeah, we kind of talked a little bit about partnerships earlier. Uh, you and Chris were good early on. Uh, he decided that it wasn't right for him, which it isn't a lot right for a lot of people. Totally understandable. What was right about your current partners? Well, how did you know that they would be the right fit for you? Um, well, Michelle, actually we had opened a second comfort in Portsmouth, Virginia. Um, right before the economic collapse in 2008. And that was really not the time to be opening at a second location in a Navy town um, and shipping town. So it was tough, man. We closed a, about a year and a half in, but Michelle was our general manager there and she and I worked together extremely well. Um, she ran that place as a GM, as though she was an owner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we became really, you know, we're, we're best friends. We love each other. We have a great working relationship. We have a great personal relationship. Um, and that's really, that was the key is finding somebody who, if you're going to hire them in initially and then potentially create partnership, is making sure that, that that's a shared vision. You know, um, if you don't have a shared vision, it's going to be a fucking disaster. Yes. How do you make sure the, the vision is shared? How do you make sure you're on the same page? It's about constant contact, constant conversation and, um, and honesty, even when it sucks, um, mm-hmm. brutal honesty is absolutely imperative. And it doesn't mean being a dick to each other. A lot of times it just means being really, if anything, um, showing your, your, your weaknesses, you know, being vulnerable, um, and putting those things out there. And if somebody's on the same page with all of those things, um, then that's pretty much a good sign that you're going to have a good working relationship. So you found the right person. They, they treat it like they own it and they're working for you. They're a GM. They're going from an hourly or maybe a salary employee to now maybe as a partnership. How do you make that transition? How, what, what advice do you have from maybe if you're, if you're at that position where you see somebody who's treating it like they own it and you want to bring them on board, you want to reward them for their hard work. How do you go about doing that? You know, there's, there's, there are several different ways to do it. Um, we've had chefs that have had partnerships that we've, you know, hired on and given three to 5% ownership. So they, they develop that ownership but with us, and I see it with a lot with other restaurant owners that I know that have multiple concepts, is that when you find somebody who's amazing, you sort of create a place for them mm-hmm. to be um, and to partner with so you don't lose them, yep. right? I mean, staffing and finding the right people is such a, such a critical thing. So sometimes it really is that. So, and that's what it was with Michelle. It's like, you know what? You want to invest in something. You want to put some money in. You want some ownership. Let's figure out a concept that means something to both of us. Mm. And let's do that. Um, awesome. 
Awesome. And that as that is a really great way to to bring that partnership in and expand business. Mm-hmm. So we're already at uh we're approaching almost an hour uh, of recording time. It goes by fast, man. It really does. <laughs> yeah, it uh, does. That's why I say a half hour. People are like, oh, your podcast is an hour, an hour and a half sometimes. That's really long. Huh? I'm like, well, you try to get to know somebody in a half hour. Uh, you can pull back <laughs> those layers, man. I want this to be impactful. So uh, anything we didn't discuss up to this point, uh, anything that uh, maybe crossed your mind that we didn't quite get into that you, you want to really address before we move on to the speed round? Uh, you know, I mean, we could we could talk about this for six hours, easy, yeah. and probably not touch on everything. Um, you know, I think that that the thing that we hit on early is probably I, I feel like is the key to success in this business, which is which is uh, real, true humility, um, and putting yourself maybe not in the back seat, but certainly in the passenger seat for a lot of this. Understanding that it's about the guest experience, it's about your staff. It's about, it's about everybody. It's not just about you and what you're putting on a plate as a chef, or if you're a GM or a Psalm, it's not about, you know, how fucking rad your wine list reads necessarily. It's, it's about all these other things. And if you're not um, humble enough to be able to accept failure and learn from other people, you're, you're doomed. You're so absolutely doomed. One question before we go to break um, to dive deeper. How do you stay humble? <laughs> constant debilitating failure um, <laughs> closed a few restaurants um, and that'll put some humble on you real quick yep. um, but a lot of it is really like you know seeing the largesse of other people you know um, being out in the community and out in different cities and, and experiencing other restaurants and realizing that you know what some what some of these people are doing is just mind-boggling you know that you can't even get your head around how rad it is um and it's important for that to be inspiring and humbling not um for it to just beat you down Mm -hmm. and it can you know you can let it get you down but um there's a there's there's constant reminders of of my fallibility and that keeps me pretty damn humble awesome uh and you mentioned one other thing so i said one more question but i'm gonna ask another question and you said um you failed a couple times and you've had to close a few restaurants so how Mm -hmm. do you stay positive uh when you have to make that decision to call it quits and to move on uh how do you not look at that as a failure and how do you look at that as a, a a learning opportunity well i mean those are mutually exclusive I mean, it is a failure, mm. um, but it is also a learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is that, you know, if you have other concepts that are still open, it's almost like when you have a kid, right? You, you don't have the luxury of completely fucking up, mm-hmm. right? You've got to keep your shit together because you've got kids that you're responsible for. You, it's the same thing with the other concepts. You know, mm-hmm. you've got a, a team or multiple teams of people that are relying on you. Um, and you've got guests and regulars that are relying on these businesses, um, and if you can't find the positivity, and sometimes it's just muscle work. Sometimes it's just forcing yourself um, because everybody has those days, man, where it's, it's kind of hard to get out of bed. Yep. Um, but you just, you, you know, if you have these other concepts going, you don't have the luxury of just, you know, balling up and staying in the bed for two months. You, you've got to keep your shit together. Um, and there's a lot of inspiration in that, you know, and, and being positive for the team. And that translates into positivity for yourself, you know, yep. um, a lot of times just forcing that becomes very real. Mm. Man, I, I could just keep on asking questions, but we got to respect your time and we got to get to the speed round. So we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. 
Have you heard of the 80-20 rule? Well, if you haven't, it states that for many events, roughly 80% of effects come from 20% of the causes. How does this apply to the restaurant industry? Roughly 80% of your total revenue comes from 20% of your customers. That 20%, well, those are your loyal customers. Five Stars helps you get more loyal customers and helps you strengthen the bond between existing loyal customers. This method is so effective that Five Stars users have reported up to two. 200% increase in revenue. Set up a demo today and learn about their two newest features. Word of mouth, which allows your guests to share the rewards they earn at your restaurant with their friends and network matching, where basically if you get a hundred customers to sign up, five stars will send you 100 new customers that have never been to your restaurant. To learn more, head over to get.fivestars.com slash unstoppable or use promotional code unstoppable. And when you see a demo, five stars will send you a $25 gift card to some of their favorite retailers like Target, Starbucks, Home Depot, and more. Get on it. To be unstoppable, most restaurant owners require extra capital from time to time. When you need funding to renovate, buy equipment, or manage cash flow, you don't have time to track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. That's where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. Apply online and you'll get a decision right away. Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You never have to reapply to take out additional loans and you only pay for the funds you use. Cabbage has helped more than 100,000 businesses from every industry with over $3 billion in funding. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company twice in a row. Check out Cabbage with a K.com slash unstoppable and you'll get a $100 gift card when you qualify. That's K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash unstoppable line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. We're back and I was just informed we have 10 minutes to make this happen. So we're going to make this a true <laughs> speed round. I'll have to show discipline like I usually don't. Uh, all right. First question. What is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Uh, shit. Um, right now, I'd have to say sobriety because um, shit was getting really tough for a while. Um, and I kicked the booze about nine months ago and it's a work in progress. But um that's really, uh, that's, I'm attributing a, any continued success to that. Uh, so it was a little touch and go for a while. I would love to dive deeper in that conversation. Just one quick thing. Yeah, we, can, we, can, we can do a follow-up uh, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> What's one thing you're doing to help you stay off the, the booze? Just one tip, one piece of advice. We won't have to dive in deep. Um, exercise when I can. A shitload of club soda. Like all the goddamn club soda that you can imagine. Um, and, and being conscientious of getting out of the situations when it feels like it's a little bit too much to take, yep. you know, is your, is your life if it's proven to be difficult. I just haul ass in nine months. Would yeah. you say you're, you're doing better as far as quality of life? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Good it's, you, uh, man. it's not easy every day, but it's better every day. Good for you. Awesome. Uh, what is Thanks. your biggest weakness? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> It was for sure. I'm pretty easily distracted Um, and not ADD style, but I just, you know, I I get distracted pretty easily. And so that, that intense focus sometimes gets lost. Um, And I have to really like force myself to, to stay focused on the task at hand. And, um, and that's tough, but it's, 
crucial to success. There's an acronym so that that's helps me. I'm right there, dude. I'm right there with you. There's an acronym that helps me and it's focus, uh, follow one course until success. And if you just, you know, yeah, follow one, just do one thing until you, you got it the way you want it and don't distract yourself channel that that yeah. attention awesome uh what is one question or thing you ask during the interview process when you're trying to grow that awesome team um i always ask what they enjoy about other restaurant experiences when they're out in other places what is it that makes them feel like they're either especially taken care of or that they find unique like you know what is that last dining experience you had that made you like, holy shit this is amazing um and I feel like that says a lot about the cook or the manager or the server or bartender. It says a lot about where their focus is um, and what they deem important. And, you know, it's an interview. People are going to tell you what you want to hear to an extent. Um, but that's something you can really dig into a little bit. Um, and I think that that gets you a lot of ideas about who that person is. Yep, you know, absolutely. As Break off that standard flow. Get get creative. Really dive in deep. Pull back those layers. That's where the real answers are going to live. Uh, <clears throat> what is your biggest challenge today? how to convince people to come in and spend money in my restaurants every single second of every day. <laughs> um, it's kind of a bullshit answer, but uh, no, I mean, our biggest challenges is really staying relevant, you know, having to f- create content to fill f- four different channels of social media for three different restaurants and, and pursue local and national publications because um, in this day and age, if you're not doing that, you're going to get, you're, you're just going to get forgotten. So, um, and that's a lot. Are you doing anything different recently to combat that challenge? Um, I'm trying to actually force myself to spend at least an hour, um, a dedicated hour to three hours a week, just dealing with PR stuff, generating content, um, and focusing on that. So that then there's a there's a path that's kind of laid out. For me. So um, doing stuff like this. <laughs> stuff like this creating content you know and and it's great i enjoy i enjoy this stuff a lot you know this kind of stuff and doing you know doing stuff for magazines is great but um but yeah it's a challenge keeping up with all of it because if you don't man um you know all of a sudden you're just forgotten about awesome the huge challenge is really really difficult so share one code of contact or code of conduct or behavior you teach your team and this is like a value or a way to behave a way to act Respect, respect for the guests um, and respect for your fellow employee. Um, we don't allow any bullshit harassing behavior. We don't allow any of that sort of classic front of house, back of house, um, headbutting. It's bullshit. It's counterintuitive to success. Um, and at the end of the day, that impacts the guest experience. So it's all about respecting everybody that you work with and subsequently the guests as well. Um, respect is key. Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to be doing a, a webinar with our boy, Rudy Mick, awesome dude on safe space, how to create that, that work environment of respect basically. So if you're interested in creating more respect in your, your restaurant, check that out. I'll have links in the show notes. And, uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? And this is something like I, the example I always use when I was doing a stage at row 34 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, they, uh, taught me that when I approach a table, I should hold something behind whatever is in my hand that doesn't belong to that table. Say if it's like a, a plate or whatever, hold it behind your back uh, as an example of an unstandard level of service. So what is one unstandard level of service you teach your team? Um, hopefully it's becoming more standard, but we try and, and really um, we work on uh, anticipation of guest needs. 
the example that we often use is that we sell a shitload of pimento cheese, right? Um, we're sort of known for our pimento cheese. And we serve it with a cute little bag of crackers. Um, don't ask the guests if they want more crackers. If you see they have three crackers left and they have a half, half a pot of cheese, just do it. swing by, drop that on them. You know, just those, those expectations and those little minor touches of anticipatory service, um, that's what can take a casual level of service and make it something that's really memorable. Share one online resource or tool that's helped you just improve systems, communication, anything. Uh, or it could even be like a magazine, a resource that you, an online resource that you check out. Um, I spend a lot of time on a, on a forum. Um, it's not a fully closed forum, but kind of called Chess with Issues um, that my friend Kat Kinsman runs. And it's invaluable to me. And it's really just a place where people can go and open up about anything from dealing with their issues with substance abuse to issues of depression to issues of, oh, my God, I'm in this restaurant and it's so hard to make a buck and it's overwhelming um, and allows for a lot of people who are like minded that are industry specific to uh, to be there and support one another. And I get a lot of inspiration from that. Yes. So it's maybe not necessarily about dealing with systems and sort of the rote day to day restaurant work but it keeps me very, very focused and, and inspired. So I spent a lot of time on that forum. And that was chefs with issues forum website. Yep. Cool. Uh, what is one book that's a must read that will make us better leaders or restaurant owners in general? Um, any of the Ruth Rachel memoirs, I think are really great. Um, I think it's a, it's a different insight into restaurant culture um, that, you know, that I think is really, really imperative. And, Gabriella Hamilton's memoir, I think, is extremely inspiring. Um, it's a lot about overcoming adversity. Um, and she's she's a great writer, and she's a fucking fantastic. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Ruth Richel. Did I say that right? Can you spell that last name for me? Yeah, Rachel. R-E-I-C-H-E-L. Okay, cool. She was the Times food critic for a long time. Got you. Uh, what is one piece of technology you've adopted in your restaurant? This isn't an online resource. This isn't something like a tool online. This is actually like a physical tool or technology that you have in your restaurant. Um, we use iPad-based point-of-sale systems, um, and they really have been able to change how we function. Um, Do you know the name? They're so... F- we, yeah, we use breadcrumb. Um, and just like anything, you know, it's any point of sale system, right? It's got its things that you hate and things that you love. But going from a rigid mainframe style um, point of sale system to something that's cloud-based and iPad-based has been a big benefit to us. Awesome. It allows a lot more freedom of mobility, um, and it's also a lot lower financial impact. Are you leveraging the UpServe feature package? The, the uh, technology? I'm not personally. <laughs> no. Okay. Interesting. I mostly am using it for, um, you know, just little things like the other day, our, the internet went down. Mm-hmm. We're like, oh, fuck, we can't process credit cards. But with that point of sale system, we plug in a, a square reader and it's seamless, you know. So things that, you know, we don't have to bust out the knuckle buster while using Aloha anymore. Gotcha. So just some of those little things that can really help with the ease of service. Okay. We're almost done. One more big question and we'll wrap it up. And that is if you were going to learn or if you learned that um, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow and all the memories of you, your work, your restaurants were lost and you had to depart with only three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Um, love what you do 
and the people around you. Be humble. And with that comes acceptance of failure as well as success. And have fun. It's really hard to have fun sometimes. Um, and without that, none of it's worth it. Awesome. This has been a lot of fun, Chef. You've been a great guest. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, we it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> it has. We wrap up every episode uh, calling somebody out. So who is one independent restaurant operator? Somebody you admire in this industry. Somebody that you think would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today. That's how I found you. Jenny called you up. Um, yeah, she's awesome. Um, Adam Sappington from the Country Cat um, in Portland, Oregon. Adam. He's look an up. awesome guy. He's... Adam Sappington. Yeah. He's great, man. He's super, super well. So yeah, I mean, he's just, he's awesome. He's family. All right. Um, We're at our 10, but minutes. he's, he's got some, <laughs> some pretty interesting chef is going to get going. Uh, and then uh, before I let you go, chef, just one way we can connect. If you want to maybe come work for you, join your team, come get mentored by you or just check out what you're up to. What's the best way to connect? Um, you know, Facebook is Jason alley. Um, Instagram and Twitter are both comfort. Jason RVA. Um, and people can feel free to email. It's Chef Jason Alley at Gmail. Awesome. Um, you know, we'd love to, to chat and see anybody. This is episode 400. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 400. I'll have links to how to connect, links to all the, the books, the resources uh, that were mentioned in, in the summary of today's discussion, all right there. Chef, thank you so much for taking the time to share our story, to be Thanks, open man. and honest and just real, uh, and just for being humble. Uh, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks, Couldn't man. do it without you. Thanks. I appreciate it so much. There is no questioning. You are <laughs> unstoppable, my man. There's another awesome episode wrapped up here at Restaurants Unstoppable. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know I enjoyed recording this one. Chef Jason, Jason, Chef Jason Alley, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us to share your story and your advice. There was some great advice in today's episode. Guys, it took Jason almost 10 years from committing his life to this career to becoming an owner. Uh, three years in, I think, Chicago or like in the, hotel, I don't know, the, the country club in Chicago, then another three years in in, in Georgia, and then another year and a half uh, in Richmond before he partnered up with his, with his then partner, Chris, I mean, that just goes to show that it takes time. It takes time to, to really learn this industry and learn what it takes and to learn and to get that clarity. We talked about getting clarity. Like he didn't find himself. He didn't know what his niche was. He didn't know what he wanted to do. It, it took, it takes time to really find your passion, to find your niche and, and to learn the skills you'll need to be successful in this industry. So I wanted to highlight that. And I also wanted to highlight his focus on trust and humility and just taking care of other people. And that was a big uh, thing that was kind of just breezed over, but it's huge in in providing opportunity to other people. When he was talking about finding his new partner, uh, he found somebody who treated it like they owned it and uh, somebody who he trusted. And he, he provided opportunity to that person. And that's what this industry is all about is creating opportunities for others and living to serve others, to, to make them better professionals, to give them, opportunity to own, whether that's with you or, or if, if you're just giving them the skills and the knowledge to do it out on their own. I mean, that's what it's all about. And I love the advice, uh, which doesn't come up often on uh, buying versus leasing. Uh, 
before this conversation, I would have said hands down that you're always better off to own because it's an asset. And really, at the end of the day, um, our wealth is determined by our assets. So uh, it's not just the business, but it's the, the actual brick and mortar and the property that you're investing in. And it's smart. But he makes a great point that if you're new to this and you don't have any experience as a as a uh, landlord, then is that an extra stress that you want to take on? It's a reasonable question. So consider that. Um, awesome stuff today. Like always, guys, got to go through my motions here. Please do connect with me, Eric, at restaurantsunstoppable.com. If you know somebody who I should be making an example of, please put them on my radar. I'm always looking for the next guest mentor. Uh, or if you just have a challenge or a topic that we can discuss, uh, I'm, I'm here to serve you. I'm trying to use this platform to literally uh, be a tool for you to use by coming to me, letting me know what your challenges are. Then I'll go to the people in my network, get them on the show. We'll learn together. Uh, keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming uh, up to 104 reviews. So those reviews, I love them. They, they help the show out. And they also help me out. Uh, I, I listen or I read those reviews and I, I take them to heart and I consider uh, what you guys have to say. Um, and you know, it's, it's great to hear the good things too. And, and it keeps me showing up. So I appreciate those, those nice things you guys are saying in those reviews. Thank you. And then, uh, I am accepting donations. Uh, and I just, <laughs> I just got, um, I just transferred or traded in my, my Honda civic for a Honda hatchback, uh, because I want to be able to sleep in my car. Uh, and that's the plan. I want to tr- do a lot more traveling, uh, to some great cities. And I feel like if I can just get in these restaurants uh, and, and uh, approach them face to face, I'm going to be able to get way more guests on the show. But also, I'll be able to take my phone and you know go behind the scenes and maybe do a short live video on uh, something that was discussed during the interview. But we can then do a live video to actually show you what we were talking about. If, if they're talking about the new system they're implementing or the new the, the, the process they have, we can actually take you through that process uh, using uh, different media sources that are out there and being able to just be on site and to be more flexible. I think that's really going to bring this thing to the next level. So like I said, I am accepting any support you can offer. We do accept donations. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash support. Every little bit helps. And um, what else is new? Oh, uh, I think that's it. I think we're good for now. Um, you know, all those things I mentioned before, they do support the show, but the best way to support the show is just by sharing this resource with others. Who do you know in the industry who is aspiring to be great? Let them know about this resource. Let them learn from others who are great, who who are willing to share their story and their advice. And that's what we're here to do is to, to lift off this industry and move it forward. So uh, I could use your help on spreading the word. All right, guys, that's all for today. I love you all so much. Thank you for sticking around this long. And until next time, peace out.